Welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. As if you couldn't tell, this is one of our live shows. And we're thrilled to be back at the Fortune Theatre in London, in Covent Garden, one of the most beautiful, intimate theatres in the land. It's where Woman in Black is showing on weeknights. But on a Sunday afternoon, we have a two o'clock matinee. We've got a residency here up until April. Uh, no. February. Uh, I just live <laughs> for the future. <laughs> I was torn between April Fool's Day and Valentine's Day. And always for me, Valentine's Day seems like April Fool's Day. That's why I got confused. <laughs> anyway, this is where we come once a month and meet purple people and people who are new to purple and have a fun time. And we do a different topic every time we do one of these live shows. And we have questions and answers instead of our correspondence. So that's the nature and of the beast. And we have lovely people who come every time. So thank you so much to those of you who come again. This is the voice of Susie Dent, oh, yes. a leading lexicographer. And she's been my friend since we first met on the wonderful word game Countdown. And we've been friends ever since. And we just meet up once a week to create a podcast all about words and language. And Susie usually chooses the theme. And what's the theme you've chosen for our conversation today? I have chosen a topic that is very close to your heart. I know it's one of your passions, cooking. And uh, you know a lot about this, don't you, Giles? <laughs> <laughs> People who are here in the audience can see I'm doing a sort of faking a yawn. I'm not good, not a good cook. And I'm less interested in food as the years go by. But you tweet regularly about what you're about to eat. Because I'm amused by the look of it. Okay. Uh, if it's an amazing plate of something, mm. I do that terrible thing. I photograph it uh, and send it out on Instagram or, or Twitter. My signature dish uh, is a fish finger sandwich, um, <laughs> which I, I love. I'm very keen to on baked beans on toast, mm -hmm. though I've recently discovered the toast may not be necessary because I'm on a low-carb diet. So I just have the baked beans. And I put them out of the tin in the microwave. Uh, that, but who needs them hot? So I like baked beans that are cold. Ooh. And I've now discovered... Yeah, oh, yes. No, I couldn't do that. Open the tin. And, and now there's a little ring pull. Oh. Open the tin, ring pull. And then use the fork and eat them straight no. from the tin. That's my idea of cooking. Right. We, OK, well, we're going to get on really well today. No, but I, I, of course, I'm fascinated by the world of cooking. Mm. I'm amazed by the way cookery has become... Almost a sort of cult thing. They're cooking. Well, I'm programs. hoping you've met many a uh, proper chef in your time. There will be name dropping during Good. the course of this show, because both my wife and I, when we were very lucky, in 1969, we were students together at Oxford University, and we were befriended by the most famous cook in the land in those days, a lovely lady called Fanny Craddock. She, was she? Anybody yeah, I remember Fanny, Fanny Craddock. Craddock. Was she at university with you? No, she okay. was not. She was even older than us. We, we were 19 or 20. She was then, I suppose, in her 50s or even 60s. Okay. And if you don't know Fanny Craddock, difficult to describe. She was a television chef. A little, well, she was robust. Very blunt. I, well, I, I really describe it as a curious cross between Mary Berry and Jeremy Clarkson. Um, <laughs> She, she, but she was, a, she was a great popularizer of good food. She and her husband, Johnny, he was an expert on wine. They did a column in the Daily Telegraph for many years under the name Bon Viveur. And then she began appearing on television. Uh, famously, Johnny is the person who at the end of one program said, and I do hope your, uh, <laughs> your donuts turn out like Fanny's. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. 
He wore a monocle. <laughs> he, they, they, I'll a tell you more stories about them later. They were a lovely couple, and, and in some ways they've had a bit of a bad press, but they, they popularised good cooking. She was quite sharp-tongued, wasn't she? She was, but it was done to be amusing. Okay. Anyway, so we knew Fanny Craddock, but we knew Keith Floyd, we knew, we know Raymond Blanc, but I don't know much about the language of cooking. So okay. Actually, oh, shall we start? I mean, with the word cook yes. and cooking. What's the origin of those words? Okay, well, it comes from an old English word, cook, <laughs> uh, which, which was the early form of cook, essentially. And, Forgive um, me, cook is the early form of cook. I'm not surprised. Well, it's spelt C-O-C, oh. and that goes back... As in cook, cook. 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 That goes back to the Latin cocus. Uh, which also goes concoct. Because you think about concocting something, you're kind of cooking it together. And cook and cooking, so how do nouns also become verbs? Because you are a cook who cooks. Mm. Where, did, where did that come along, be? Well, usually quite soon after one or the other appears. But we tend to think of verbing, you know, changing our nouns into verbs as being quite modern and quite American. Or like meddling, I loathe that. I don't know what... Meddling you know, at Olympics. At Olympics. Oh, oh yes. look, look who's meddling. Yes, we've talked about verbing before, haven't we? Solutioning was the one that I couldn't stand. Oh, Let's yeah, set solution yeah. a problem. But more often than not, and you'll be familiar with this refrain from me, if you look it up in the dictionary as you know, a verb that we lay at the feet of supersizing America, we, we had it in British English centuries ago. And Shakespeare loved... To verb. I mean, he played around with parts of speech all the time. So it's an it's a, just a, you know one of the major uh, processes of evolution, really. So that we change part of speech, and so it moves on in that way. So cook originally comes from the Latin, and cooking comes from cook. 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 Okay. Let's talk about different kinds of, of cooking when, okay. when we are cooking. I mean, I like a roast. I still like, I, I'm now a veggie. Me too, but all the trimmings. I'm I, very happy I with that. I love the trimmings. Yes. Yeah. We'll I really get very sad, actually, if I ever go out for, if I'm, if I'm ever invited to a Sunday lunch or if I'm ever at a meal where a roast is served, because I'm veggie, obviously I don't get it. Where actually all I want to say is, I don't care, just give me everything but the meat. Is the same with you? Oh, I love that. Yeah. We go to a pub near us. We live in southwest London in Barnes. We go to a pub called the Red Lion, where on Sundays they always do a, a roast. Yeah. And because we're veggies, we still have it all. And we have an enormous Yorkshire pudding, yeah. lashings of gravy and cabbage. Do uh, you just check it's not done with goose fat or whatever? Yeah, I thought yeah, that might be the answer. Yeah. OK. Well, should we talk about roasting then? <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, a goose fat potato. I'm not saying. <laughs> People who are here can actually see me salivating. Like, oh. Okay, so roasting is Germanic because, as we say so often on Purple, uh, English at heart is a Germanic language, despite everything that came from French via Latin from Greek, and there's an, a huge percentage of that too. But at its heart, thanks to the Angles and the Saxons, it is a Germanic language. I don't think I've really absorbed that. Mm. I mean, I always thought it was, as it were... Well, Latin and Greek. Yep. And then a bit of French. Ang I mean, there's a bit French of everything. Anglo -Saxon, to be fair. But you're saying, is the Anglo Saxon the German? It's Germanic. So Old English was very much based on uh, Germanic vocabulary. And that means words coming from Germany or. Well, Germanic, no, because Germanic nations obviously had very different boundaries originally. So the Angles obviously gave us our, our name, England, Angleland. And the Saxons gave us 
Sussex, South Sussex, Wessex was West Sussex, and that's what those were named after the Saxons, who, if you remember, were named after their weapon of choice, which was a sword, the sax. This is the joy of this programme. You live and learn. Then, unfortunately, you die and forget it all. But <laughs> in the interim, it do enjoy something rhymes with purple. So, roast is a Germanic word. Yes. Now, would you think that there was a link between roasting something and a roster of duties? Not necessarily. No. What is the link? No, there is a link. Because essentially, both go back to um, a, a Dutch word uh, from that Germanic family, rooster, which is spelt like our rooster as in the bird, but it meant a list. But if, first of all, it meant a gridiron because of the appearance of that list. It looked like a series of kind of grills. So it looks back to one of the earliest meanings of, of roasting, which was essentially grilling something. And it was used as opposed to baking, which was cooked in an oven. A roast was cooked on an open fire. So the roster that you see telling you what hour you're going to turn up at work, that yeah. sort of thing, is based on the idea of the grill, the lines across a grill. Yeah. How amazing. I know. Just so a, just roast and roster. Thing. And indeed, are they not an anagram of each other? Roast and roster? Yes. Yes, they are no, an no, anagram. No, 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 because it's roster, E-R. E-R. Roster is R-O-S-T-E-R. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't you know, done reality is somewhat deflating at times, isn't it? What a shame. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. So roster is spelled how? R-O-S-T-E-R. Yes. And roast is spelled R-O-A-S-T. Yes. Okay. You mentioned grill. Where does that come from? As in uh, a grill. Grillé, French. This is a French word. So it originally probably goes back to the Romans, but it came to us from French. We give someone a grilling because it's like exposing them to intense heat, you know, by our interrogation. So a lot of cooking metaphors, I'm sure we'll, we'll cover lots of them. Uh, hold on. So the grill, when you're grilling something, that the origin, what came first was the grill through which you looked. If you are an enclosed order of nuns peering through grills of the outside world, the uh. passing monks, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it's, the, it's the grill that gives yes. you... I actually don't know what came first. It's a very good, good point. I don't know whether that physical grill as in a railing, came before the grill with which you cook food. I suspect that they probably emerged around the same time, but I can check it because I have the OED. So you know. Should we check that? Because it'd be useful to, yeah. to know that when you're making small talk. Uh, <laughs> well, as we do. I don't know if you ever watch a programme called First Dates. Uh, I never find them having an interesting conversation like we have. <laughs> uh, Whereas I think if I was on a first date with Susie, I would say, should we have the grill? Oh, tell me more. Oh. Which came... <laughs> And then, you know, we'd see that we were on the we same wavelength. Hmm? Anyway, <laughs> grill, it seems... I wonder if that's spelt with an E. I should know this. The grill? grill with which you look through... Oh, I'm looking through a grill. That's, yeah. Some people in the audience seem to think it is G-R-I-L-L-E. Yes, exactly. So it's spelt with an E or you can spell it. So it gives us both. And the cooking sense came first. There you are. So there you, you cooked with a grill before you looked through a grill. Now we know. Uh, but this is very good. Yeah. Can I say, if I were meeting you for the first time, <laughs> I would say that you are beautiful, exquisite, lovely, gorgeous, divine. And then you say you swallowed a thesaurus. And uh, you got the punchline <laughs> before I did. Oh, I'm sorry. Me. I'm sorry. We know each other too well. We do, we do, we do. Have you ever spatchcocked anything? <laughs> She cuts to the chase, doesn't she? <laughs> Deary me, our uh, opening word was, you know, cook comes from cock, let's go on from there. 
We're now getting the spatchcock. Tell me about yes. a spatchcock. Okay, well, it's it's a slightly strange thing, isn't it? So you and I don't eat meat, so we probably don't see this very often, but it's when you split open a whole chicken or a turkey and then, and then grill it. So it makes it easier to grill because I think this is right. It has a flat surface. And so you might say spatchcock that chicken. <laughs> to your, you know, resident chef. But essentially, it comes from a sort of slightly strange phrase from Ireland, actually, dispatch the cock, um, essentially. Um, and that's when they needed to whip up a very simple dinner. They'd say, let's dispatch that cock. Marvelous. Now, I don't know if it actually meant killing the poor animal in the process, but that is essentially what they were doing. Well, let's eat the animal live. It must well, have meant that. Dispatch, as in that sense of dispatch. Anyway, and that was then shortened to spatchcock. And there's also spitchcock, apparently, which is to split an eel lengthways and fry it. Mm. It was Victoria Wood, wasn't it, who defined coq au vin as love in a lorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, what about poaching an egg? I imagine oh, you're quite good at that, are oh. you? I have to say, a poached egg is, for me, a well-poached egg is perhaps the best thing in the world. I know, I've still not mastered it. It's very difficult to do. You know, the, the real chefs, they just boil up some water and they poach the egg somehow yeah. without any appliance. My father used to have a special kind of poaching machine, mm. which, um, which we, we inherited, but it never seemed to work for us. The, the albumen, that's the white bit, always got stuck inside, even if you put a little bit of butter. And we got a plastic thing recently where you put the egg inside the plastic and it bubbles about. Yeah. Uh, have you got a good secret? No, no, I just don't. Does I, anybody here have a good secret? Uh, of how to poach an egg? Or maybe, maybe you could... Um, with the vinegar, I think if you put the right amount of vinegar yeah, in the water, then... If you have got a fantastic way of cooking, please do come up to us in the break. I love a poached egg. You mentioned albumen. That's that's quite nice because that is linked to Albion, which was an old term for Britain. And it was all to do with the Latin albus, meaning white. So Britain was called Albion because of the white cliffs of Dover. And the albumen of an egg is an egg white. It's also linked to album because originally an album in Roman times was this blank bit of white marble upon which public announcements were inscribed. What is amazing is there's nobody feeding this to her in the air. She, kn she knows this. And she doesn't know what we're going to talk about. She is extra. You are extraordinary. Well, thank uh, you. So, so poaching. Poaching. Well, poaching. Is it to do with a pocket? Posh? It is. Absolutely right. Posh yes. is French for pocket. Yes. And that posh is also behind the poke of don't buy a pig in a poke. In other words, don't buy a pig in a sack at a fair that you can't actually see. So poke was another word for a posh or pocket. Yeah. Your, I mean, everybody's favourite meal is breakfast, mm. isn't it? Yeah. What is your favourite breakfast? Um, I quite like a good veggie fry-up, I have to say. Oh. But I also love porridge. Really? Yeah, porridge is what I have every day. Do you not like porridge? No. Oh. I love the TV series, but I don't... Oh, yeah. No, I think, I think poached, a poached egg, actually. Mm. Poached egg on brown toast. That's what you have. No, it's is not what, what I have, it's what I dream about. What do you have? <laughs> what we're having at the moment, what we had for breakfast this morning, uh, Michelle and I, um, we had, she had a pear, I had an oh. apple. And I cut it into the apple into little squares <laughs> because I'm trying to contain my weight. And I had some cheese to have the okay, protein. Okay, that's good. Okay. What about sautéing? Sautéed things? Sautéed mushrooms? Yes. Sauté is to jump in exactly, French, isn't it? Exactly right. That's so, what it is. It makes things jump in the pan and also often you shake the pan so that the ingredients jump up and down. So it's all about jumping. Sautéing? Yep. Uh, poaching? Oh, stewing. Stewing. Now, stew 
is really interesting because the very first meaning of stew was to sit in a hot steam bath. And it was normally a public bath where people would come, much if you imagine a Roman bath, where people would come, strip off, wash, perform their ablutions and just chat to other people. And it was so hot that obviously at some point there was this slightly jokey idea that a set of meat or some meat and fish in some hot water and some vegetables would look like people sitting in a steam bath. So that's where it came from. And it's from the Latin stufare, which meant to steam. And that also, believe it or not, gave us typhoid because of the incredibly hot temperatures that typhoid patients had because uh, stufare came from the Greek tufos, T-U-P-H-O-S. So it's all connected. Typhoid, steam baths and vegetable stews. Isn't it weird? There's actually, at these steam baths, were also public loos. And some people say that in Roman loos, which were next to the steam baths, uh, they had, they used sticks uh, with um, loo roll, or whatever the equivalent was, at the end of them. And uh, the, the expression used, get the wrong end of the stick, was when you accidentally, <laughs> I know, picked up the wrong end. So that's one theory. You didn't know Just what you were going to get this afternoon, <laughs> did you? Instantly, they paid their money, they came in for a thought, they had a nice, cosy afternoon with that lovely girl, Susie, from Countdown, and they're being exposed to all this sort I of know, thing. I know, it's horrible. Did you know, in 1947, among the many wonderful things that happened that year, uh, including, I think, degrees being awarded to women from Cambridge University for the first time. Oh, amazing. Only, only that many, that recently. Isn't that extraordinary? But the first soft toilet paper mm. was introduced to Britain. So really? Did Harrods in the first bump. Remember bump, short for bump fodder, which was loo roll. Do you remember? Is that the origin of bump? Mm. Yeah, something throwaway. Well, let's uh, get back to cooking. Um, okay, okay. But, um, but also, uh, you just, just reminded me about the wooden spoon. I thought you can just bring in the wooden spoon because if you, I can't quite remember the full story of this, but uh, students, particularly at Cambridge, but also Oxford, I think, those who got the lower degree were given a wooden spoon instead of a certificate. Oh, that's humiliating. I know, that's why, why would they get, what, what is the symbolism of the wooden spoon? I'm not completely sure. So I'll come back to that in a future ep. That is quite interesting. But yeah, that's where we get the wooden spoon um, from. Oh, mm. blanching. Not that I, I know yes. about blanching, but I do remember Fanny Craddock. In fact, I think there were vessels called blanched bowls. Oh, really? I've only have ever had blanched almonds, I think. That's the only, Blanche, my only experience. I assume it's to do with being white. It is. Blanchir. Why we, but when we blanch, if we've had a shock, we, we go white. So I assume with almonds, I can get that. If you blanch them, they go particularly white. So maybe when food is cooked very, very quickly at high heat, just to the, um, is it just to the boiling point, possibly? I think that's when things go, go white. So that's the idea. You scald it yes. at boiling point yeah. and for a sort of moment, and then it sort of uh, put it in cold water. That's yeah. what blanching, oh, hence the bowl. That's what the blanching bowl is for. Have and you then done... you put it in cold water, don't you? So you really heat it and then you put it in cold water. That's have we talked about thing. frying? Uh, frying tonight? Frying tonight, no. We don't know where fry comes from. We don't know. It's just where... got lots of, you know, quite similar words in, in different languages, which suggests it comes from that Indo-European Indo ancient language that it, we have had to reconstruct. Explain what you just said, Indo-European okay. So Proto-Indo-European is essentially the sort of mother language of many, of all the Indo-European languages. And we, we don't have any extant... Uh, records of it, but there are, it takes something like this to fry. If there are similar words in its descendants, you can then try and reconstruct what the original was. So Proto-Indo-European is entirely reconstructed. We've guessed 
at that original word, that Uwat word, um, because of all the similar things in the family tree. And what is to fry? To fry is to cook in fat? To fry is to cook in fat, usually in a pan, a frying pan, obviously. And we now have air fryers, don't we, which are the big thing at the moment. No. People talking about I've heard Aren't they? Of we were talking Airbnb. about Airbnb. Air fry? What's an air fry? Um, I think you can cook pretty much anything in an air fry, but now that fuel is so expensive, it's actually really, I mean, I haven't got one, but it's a really economical way of cooking, I think. Look, yeah. before we have our break, yes. we've got a couple more words to do all about uh, cookery. Uh, yeah. we've, done, we've done cooking, roast, grilling, fry, didn't know much about that. Sautéing, yeah. jumping about, poaching, I like that one. Stewing, yes. Blanche, Basting, that's a good one. Basting is a really odd one because it's related to lambast somebody. And if you lambast somebody, you are essentially giving them a grilling or a basting, aren't you? You're kind of scolding them in some way. So you can see how all these culinary metaphors kind of gather force. And the earliest sense of lambast was not, though, to expose them to heat. It was to beat or thrash them. And it seems to come from that idea of Basting meaning to thrash. And I suppose the idea of basting something is is then, I, I mean, I can't quite get the sense of the progression. It's a bit of an astrological mystery why when you baste something, when you uh, essentially sort of, am I right with basting? It's kind of marinating, isn't it? If you're basting something. It, no, I thought basting, you oh. take the turkey and you have a brush, like a shaving brush, yeah. and you dip it into something and you... Isn't that basically? Yeah, so that's what I mean by marinating. Because oh, well, for me, oh, marinating is kind of brushing it. Uh, yes, yeah. you're, you're applying a yeah, sauce so it's or not, not the a sort flavoring. Of leaving something, but it's the applying of something. But when you lambast so, somebody, I suppose, what does lamb mean? I was just the lamb is it's an, um, uh, an old dialect word meaning to, again, to beat. So it, it's kind of, it's quite, quite strange that, that we can have beating and thrashing and then doing whatever we're doing when we're basting meat. Anyway, a bit of a mystery. It's an odd one. Flambe goes back to the French for singed, which makes sense. Lovely. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you in 20 minutes. Thank you for being here. Lovely. Welcome back to Something Rhymes With Purple. We're still on the stage at the Fortune Theatre in the West End of London. I wanted to ask, we were talking all about cookery, the world of cookery, the phrase cooking the books. Mm. Has that got a culinary connection? It's just a, quite a simple metaphor if you unpick it, because it, it really means that the ingredients of the books are modified, altered in some way to the benefit of the cook. So when you cook the books, you are altering them in a way that benefits you. Very good. Yeah. Lots of people had ideas about how to poach an egg. Oh, yes. Principally, somebody said, really, all you need is a truly fresh egg, really fresh. I mean, literally laid that day, crack it open into the pan and it works. Yeah. You don't do anything more. James from Crawley says that the water should be just below boiling and then you put in a splash of vinegar, swirl it about, crack your egg into a small mug, pour the egg in below the water line. How do you do that below the water line? Do you have to just press you open it in? It and then sort of you lure it in. You, yeah, yeah. You burn your fingers by <laughs> cracking it underneath it. And then wait three-ish minutes. Um, can I also give a shout out to Anson? And I did, can we get the microphone to Anson? Where are you? Um, because Anson is going to tell us about the wooden spoon because he teaches at Cambridge. Um, if it's possible to get the house lights up and then the microphone to Anson. Hello. Oh, brilliant. There you are. Um, yes. So the original mass tripos, which is the mass course at Cambridge University, ranked all the students from number one all the way down to the bottom. 
The top student was called a senior wrangler. The first class students were called the wranglers. Then you had the second class students who were called the senior optimes. And then you had the junior optimes. And then after that, you had people who didn't receive honors. Now the bottom person who received honors and just received honors was called the wooden spoon. And the wooden spoon was a ceremonial spoon of about five feet. And they used to lower it upon graduation. So when, when your name was read out, uh, you received your spoon. <laughs> Can you imagine what a humiliating ritual? Well, but how fantastic, a five-foot-long wooden spoon. No, I have seen that picture of that, actually. But it's fantastic. And were people humiliated or rather sort of proud in an absurd way? Uh, I think it depends on the particular person. I suspect some of them were quite proud to just have passed with probably the minimum amount of work. It's quite nice to be able to pass and only just pass with the minimum amount of work. This is Cambridge University, is it? Yes, yeah. Cambridge, yes. Yeah. No wonder it's yeah. being closed down. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Anson. I'm, jo I'm joking, but I don't think you'd get away with that wooden spoon thing now, would you? No, but thank you so much. Moving on to a question to the audience. Basically, thank you so much to everybody who came to offer their um, advice and their, their education. Um, but this is Fran from Chalfont St Peter. Fran, you have a question for us, I think. Hi, thank you. Hello. We were talking about Nosy Parker before the performance and we wondered which Parker that is, who does it refer to? Can you answer that? Nosy Parker. Yes. The interesting bit is uh, that it was, a very, it was a person called Nosy, you've got that the wrong way around, who found <laughs> it very difficult to find a place to park his car. <laughs> he was known as the Nosy Parker. Tell your story about getting here today. Ah, uh, well... Uh, it's not it's not very interesting, which is very annoying. So I, I explained I had to drive because it was a bus replacement service today. And I was circling. It was just the, the stupidest thing ever to drive to London. But I was circling, going round and round and round and round. Must have been circling for about half an hour. Could not find anywhere to park. And then I saw a car was just about to move. And four quite elderly people were making their way into the car. And eventually they saw me waiting there. And they said, oh, did, did you want to park in? I said, yes, thank you. And I was being quite patient, but I had three cabs behind me who were not so patient. Beep, beep, beep. But I thought, well, I'm going to stick this out. I have a show to do. So we sat there for 10 minutes. Big backlog behind me. The car finally moves out. They want a double yellow line. Did <laughs> 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 so I move on? I was so frustrated. What is the origin of the expression oh, nosy parker? Okay, well, lots and lots of stories as to who the original Nosy Parker was, Fran. But the Oxford Dictionary, I just checked this to, to see, either a fictitious individual whose story has become lost. But I know the Countdown Dictionary, which is the current dictionary, says that it probably was a voyeuristic park keeper. So the Parker, the idea of somebody who is a park keeper and likes to sort of, you know, snoop on amorous couples. That's what they think. So, uh, yeah, I'm so sorry about this, but you can take your pick. Well, I don't like that definition. No. But there we are. No, You're I agree. Fast. But 1890, so fairly recent. Gosh, 1890. Yeah. Yeah. There have been Nosy Parker since then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the next question comes from? Okay, so the next question. Give us your name, where you come from, etc. I'm Stephen from uh, Hampton Court, South West London. Stephen from Hampton Court? Ham the Hampton Court area. That kind of <laughs> uh, so while washing my daughter's hair, we had a, a good laugh about the word shampoo and how it's just got that semi-rude word just tacked onto the end of it. 
And we wonder where, or I wonder where that, that poo comes from, etymologically speaking, uh, and if it's found anywhere else in any other words. In the 1950s, there was a wonderful joke shop at the top of the Tottenham Court Road. And I used to go there regularly to spend my pocket money. And I remember buying shampoo there. And it was plastic dog poo that you would take home. Shampoo. Yeah, exactly. And you'd leave, and, and oh, it so infuriated my mother because it fooled her, it always fooled her, if we didn't have a dog. But I left. It was strong. So, uh, but that, that, that. that's a little joke you're having with your daughter because, you know, people like Anything with poo word, don't they? Is that, yes, is that they right? Do. Yes. yes. Um, okay, so uh, originally, if you were to give um, anyone a shampoo, it, it would have been someone else probably, and you would have been giving them a massage because it comes from a Hindi word meaning to massage, which has no relationship with poo whatsoever. It's just that, as we often say on the podcast, if we have a foreign word, we often just mangle it because we can't pronounce it. And so we, if we have a word that sounds vaguely like it, we will use that instead. But actually in the French, in French, I love the way they try and mask the poo bit because they call it shampoing. It, shampooing is shampoing, which is, is great and sounds much more glamorous, but it comes from a Hindi word meaning to massage. So originally it was using lots of wonderful scented ointments and things, and uh, eventually it settled on the hair wash. Excellent. Now the next question is going to come from uh, Christopher, who comes from South London. Christopher, are you upstairs, downstairs? Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm here. Um, I was reading again um, Trollope's Barchester Towers the other week and came across the word sesquipedalian. Oh, yeah. Which I had yes, to often, yeah. look up, yeah. uh, which means a bit long-winded. But um, yeah. I wondered oh, where it came from. Yeah. Sesquipedalian. Yeah, sesquipedalian uh, is one of those words where it kind of almost bears itself out. So it's sort of self-referential because to be sesquipedalian is to overuse long words. And sesquipedalia, I think, is the overuse of long words. And of course, it's ridiculously long. And I think it comes from the Latin for words that are six and a half feet long. Um, I think that's the idea. And the ped bit there is in pedicure, um, pedometer, etc. So it's a kind of joke in itself. And you'll often find little jokes hidden in some of our words. So, for example, tandem as well, the bicycle tandem, that comes from the Latin at length. And obviously some schoolboy learning Latin thought that would be quite fun to call this bicycle tandem at length. So you, quite often you find these little jokes. But I often, I often find words that are... Like a palindrome is not a palindrome and someone with a lisp cannot say lisp. I mean, I think there are some sort of quite cruel things in our words sometimes. Oh, um, but anyway, it's a great question. Sesquipedalian. Yes. And I do commend you for reading Anthony Trollope. Anyone who hasn't tried Anthony Trollope, give it a go. Thank you so much for your questions. If people have got questions of any kind, they just, and we haven't answered them today, you yeah. can email us. It's purple at somethingelse.com and the something is spelt without a G. Every week, Susie also gives us three words that she particularly enjoys. They may be archaic words, they may be current words, but they're not ones usually that we're familiar with, but you want us to be. What have you got for us this yes. week? Yes. So how this works is I will choose a real word so it definitely means something, but you probably won't have heard of it. You might have heard of the first one. But what we've asked our audience to do is to come up with their own definitions, you know, it, devise their own definitions. And the first one that I suspect some people might have heard of in their childhood is a fern tickle. And so fern tickle, the first suggestion that we have here is from Michelle Hunter from, is it Carrickfergus? 
It is. I pronounce it carrot fergus. Uh, a fern tickle is an intimate romp in the forest. Um, oh, I like that. That is brilliant. Absolutely. Um, Peter from Kensal Green says it's an inappropriate but exciting interaction with a daytime TV presenter. Paul <laughs> <laughs> Fern. These are brilliant. This is Eddie, also from Carrick Fergus. Um, the feeling on your posterior from vegetation when relieving yourself al fresco. <laughs> Oh there my goodness, go. these are all brilliant. Um, okay, so we're going to, you're, you're marking, I'm, you're I'm, judging, I, aren't you? I'm gauging the audience reaction and the prize will go to the most sustained audience reaction. Okay, so do you need a reminder or you're no, okay with I've this? No, I've got So the real definition of a fern tickle, I love this, is a freckle. Um, oh, and the, the definition that's given in the dictionary is that a freckle on the skin resembling the seed of a fern because it's just so tiny. Freckle itself was a legacy of the Vikings, actually. They gave us the word freckle from Old Norse. But anyway, that's a fern tickle, which I love. So thank you for those definitions. They were brilliant. Right. The second one, Giles, was a bodkin. Bodkin. Well, I'm familiar with the word because of Hamlet's great okay. uh, soliloquy. Yeah, so you know what a this one bodkin. is. Yep. So Gwyn from London suggests alternatively that it's an affectionate term for a six-pack. Oh, that's rather A bodkin. Nice. Well, I like the look of his bodkin. Mm. Um, now, I don't, I don't know the reference for this one, but I suspect others will. Duncan from Biggin Hill says it's a member of the 1970s TV character Bod's family. Bod's kin. Well, Who that's quite Bod? clever. Who was Bod? Well, he was a character in the <laughs> 1970s. I don't remember Bod. Bod's family. Do you remember Bod? Okay, I don't remember Bod. They're older than you, clearly. Well, I don't remember Bod. What was the series called? Bod. Oh, Bod. <laughs> <laughs> was it a children's series? It was a children's series. Okay. With a little character that walked around like that. Bodkin. Okay, well, I like that. And finally, Stephen from Hampton Court says that bodkin is a napkin for covering your bod at a naturist resort. Oh, that's lovely. That's Actually, lovely equipped too. with it, you won't suffer from burn to fern tickle, will you? No, you yeah. won't. So uh, you can tell me what it is then, Giles. It's a small dagger. Yeah. You stab someone. With exactly. It. Chaucer was the first to use it in the Reeves' tale. Oh, yeah. uh, a bodkin. But and also, did you know about baldric? You know, brilliant baldric from Blackadder. I do. Do you know what a baldric is? Remind me. It's also, it's a sash that you kind of wear across your shoulder down here, but it contains a weapon. So that is your ball trick. So that was taken from the OED. Okay, so the third word, thank you very much to everyone for the bodkin deaths. Kickshaw, a kickshaw. So Stephen from Barnes says, this is an Edwardian theatre critic. Oh, this is very clever. A kickshaw. You see, George yeah. Bernard Shaw began writing his plays in Victorian times. Somebody liked to kick and him. And he was, exactly. So if you had a kickshaw, you didn't like his plays. That's very yeah, clever. Very clever. Uh, Ian from Sutton says, a kickshaw is a Chinese cart with a flat battery. <laughs> That's good too. Isn't that good? Yes. Instead of a and ritual, a kickshaw. Andrew from Oxford says that a kickshaw, oh, Andrew, do you know about Arbukina? No, okay. Um, Andrew from Oxford says that a kickshaw is a German, or German penalty takers. Kickshaw. <laughs> kickshaw, because they're very good, huh? essentially. They're kickshaw. Oh, very Yeah, it good, took me yeah. a while, but I love that one. Fantastic. Okay, so the real definition is quite interesting because we were just talking earlier in our correspondence section with shampoo of how we struggle with foreign words. Can't quite get our tongue around them, so we opt for the closest equivalent. Kickshaw was a really bad pronunciation of quelque chose in French, uh, believe it or not. And it was used quite contemptuously 
for a really elaborate meal that looks kind of French and sophisticated, but it's ultimately really disappointing. Quelque chose. Yeah, quelque chose. Language is totally gripping. Yeah. But all those definitions, the one that got the warmest laugh, they were all much appreciated by us and by all of us. The prize, which is going to be, I think, a something rhymes with purple T-shirt. Yay! (laughs) It's going to Eddie from Carrick Fergus. Yay! So, Eddie, can I just remind you, said that a fern tickle was the feeling on your bum from vegetation when relieving yourself al fresco. Brilliant. Very, very good. Brilliant. I've got a poem for Eddie because we always end with a poem, but because we've run out of time, this is going to be a very short poem. Eddie, don't worry if your job is small and your rewards are few. Remember that the mighty oak was once a nut like you. That's our lot from this live episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. We continue with our monthly sessions here at the Fortune Theatre. Check our websites, check us online, look for us, and you'll find out how you can book tickets at the Fortune Theatre in Covent Garden. We're here in December. 18th of December. Guess what we're talking about? What? Underwear. Underwear! Or underpinnings. Undergarments. Inexpressibles. The All inexpressibles. those wonderful words that the Victorians had. Or will you wear some amusing drawers? <laughs> you won't know about them. Do come to live shows. And there were some people, I know there's a lady here who's been the last three. Three times, three yeah. Three times. With Thank her family. Thank you so much for coming. And actually lots of people have, have um, come You come again and again, so hoping you. one time we'll get it right. Uh, <laughs> and we will. Uh, so, should we do the, the closing credits now? We shall. Yes, um, you can do this If bit. you did love the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love it if you would recommend us to your friends too. On social media, we are on at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook or at Something Rhymes with on Instagram. And as you said, Giles, the email uh, to get in touch about anything just is purple at somethingelse.com. That's it. That's it. Is there more to say? Something Rhymes with Purple. This is something else than Sony Music Entertainment production produced by Harriet Wells, who's here today with us, alongside Sam Hodges, who's there in the wings, Andrew Quick from Tilted for the live shows, and additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Teddy Riley, and Visibility Poor. Gully. Gully. <laughs>